Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast. Episode 34. The Great Seljuk Empire. The Economy. Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So last time, we covered the Seljuk armies, how they fought, how they were organized, and how they related to the structures of the state. And today, we're going to move on to discuss something that I really have neglected in the narrative and I haven't given the proper attention to the economy of the great Seljuk Empire. Now, I am not an orthodox Marxist, but Karl Marx's insight that basically all of society, culture, state, politics, religion, war, art, is downstream from how human beings produce the means of their survival, the means and mode of production, is something that I think is a bit simplistic, but in large part correct. This is a key driving force of history, though we should not be overly reductionist about it as Marxists tend to be. Obviously, human beings are complicated creatures, and there are all sorts of things that drive history outside of the purely economic. But the economic system of a society is still one of the main movers of its history, a key part of why things happen and what the world looked like in the past. And therefore, you really can't understand how the Great Seljuk Empire worked, what drove the key actors and events, without understanding how the economic system was structured. Now before we begin, I'd like to note that this does raise some difficulties for Seljuk history, as our primary source historians are not writing with economics as a key focus. And indeed, The dismal science, as it is often called, wasn't really a thing at the time they were writing. However, they do provide us with some anecdotes that are useful. Incidentally, I'd note that Ibn al-Athir seems to have had a very advanced understanding of supply and demand for his time, as he often writes about how food prices in cities rise due to famine or the rampages of the Turkmen. So basically what we have to rely on here is a mix of the written sources and the archaeological record. See, because the authors of the time don't really write about the subject and are in any event only really concerned with things that affected the elites, everywhere in the world an understanding of medieval economics is going to be very, very dependent on archaeological evidence. And unfortunately, archaeology of Seljuk-era sites is in a pitiful state. Really, it's in its infancy. See, most of the best sites are in Central Asia, Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Places that have not had the benefit of political circumstances conducive to archaeology for the past 30 to 40 years. All of this is to say that the subject matter of this episode relies on a lot of assumptions made by historians, and we can't know everything we'd like to know at least at this time. Now, in the Seljuk Empire, 
there actually were really two modes of production, two economic systems, existing in an uneasy tension with each other. The nomadic economic system and the settled, semi-feudal agricultural system. And we have already seen these in tension already. Think of the constant conflict between the tribes and the settled nobility. Well, in a lot of ways, that tension came fundamentally from here. From the tension between herders and farmers. The nomadic way of life, the nomadic mode of production, has of course been with us from the beginning of this podcast. The tribes subsisted off of large numbers of the five species of Eurasian grazing mammals. Cows, goats, sheep, camels, and horses. As I said in the very first episode of this podcast, it's hard to know how big the herds for each nomadic family unit were. But studies of modern Eurasian nomads say that an average semi-nomadic or nomadic nuclear family might own 100 or so sheep and goats, tens of cattle, and under 5 to 10 horses, while a rich family may own 2 to 300 sheep and goats, over 50 cattle, and tens of horses. 60 to 100 head of animals appears to be something of a lower bound, below which survival for a family becomes basically impossible. Sheep really seem to be the most numerous animal in almost all Eurasian nomadic societies. But that said, one wrinkle for the Seldricks is that it appears that camels in particular were comparatively very important to them. Several sources mention the large number of camels the Seldricks brought with them. Ibn al-Athir, when describing the flight of Seldrick to the south, says, When he had decided on flight, with a hundred horsemen, fifteen hundred camels, and fifty thousand sheep, he headed for the lands of Samarkand. That is, Ibn al-Athir mentions camels in particular, as opposed to, say, cattle, and records a relatively high number of them, though of course outnumbered by sheep. The nomads would of course use these vast numbers of herds for meat and milk, as well as producing products to trade or sell with the settled world. Leather, felt, pelts, wool, cheese, yogurt, and so on. They were also accomplished hunters, and would supplement their domestic livestock with wild game. The herds would of course deplete the resources of a given area, necessitating the movement of the nomads and giving rise to the nomadic life itself. Nomadism was not so much a choice as an imperative imposed on the tribes by their herds. The tribes were therefore constantly driven by this need for pasturage. They had to constantly move to find areas ecologically suitable for their herds. Often they would move in relatively predictable circuits once they had found enough suitable land, say around the pasturages of the Caucasus, or in the steppes between Hamadan and Rey in Iran. Other times, they would traverse vast distances. One author, writing in Nishapur in the Seljuk period, records tribes traveling to the city all the way from Fars in southeastern Iran. That is, traversing the entirety of Iran. But always and everywhere, the tribes were looking for places to graze their herds. And as the number of tribes subject to the Seljuks grew, 
they of course needed more and more valuable pasturage. And as we have seen in the narrative, this constant need for pasturage was indeed a great driver of Seljuk history. It not only put the tribes in conflict with the settled farmers, but indeed with the court on occasion. Think of Tuchrol sending them off to Anatolia, or his disastrous attempt to keep them in Iraq, which they despised because it was ecologically unsuited to the herds. This need of the tribes to find new pasturage seems to have been exacerbated by the climatic changes that took place during the Seljuk period and indeed immediately preceding it. We have a lot of indications in our sources that the steppe worlds became both colder and drier during the early Seljuk period. Ibn al-Jawzi even reports snowfall in Baghdad. He writes, The snow filled the streets and the lanes and stood about a dira high, that is about a cubit high, and the militiamen made statues out of it in the shape of wolves and elephants. And snow in Baghdad is of course indicative of a particularly cold Eurasian climate. Along with political changes on the steppe, such as the collapse of the Uyghur Khanate in the east and the Khazar Khanate in the west, this climatic shift seems to have driven a lot of the initial Seljuk migration to the south. Indeed, the historian Richard Boulier has argued that the cooling of the climate was a particular driver for the Seljuk migrations due to the large number of camels in the Seljuk herds. These animals were likely to have been particularly sensitive to the climatic cooling. So as the Turkmen tribes moved into the Islamic world during the Seljuk period, they brought this new mode of production with them into the lands of Islam. Indeed, from an economic perspective, the Seljuk period is probably most notable for this. It was really the first major introduction of the nomadic way of life, the nomadic mode of production, into the lands of Iran, the Caucasus, and eventually Anatolia. In a sense, an economic revolution, as the tribes moved in with their new economic system, at least new to these lands. And of course, it would cause immense conflict with the economic system existing already in the Islamic world. Okay, so what was the other basic economic system? The system of Iraq, Iran, Khorasan, Balkh, and the other lands of the Islamic world that the Seljuks encountered, what I called in the beginning the semi-feudal mode of production. Of course, this economy was based around agriculture not nomadic animal husbandry. The vast, vast majority of people were peasants who worked the land. Now, it's hard to get good numbers here as everything is an estimate. And like I said, the archaeology of the Seljuk period is woefully behind. But most likely, something like 80 to 90% of the population were peasants engaged in agriculture. And remember, they are barely mentioned at all in the histories, which all revolve around the elites. Basically, we know almost nothing about how 80 to 90% of the population lived. Kind of mind-blowing when you really think about it. That said, we do know about the basic socioeconomic organization. Above the vast bulk of the laboring peasants, there existed a class of usually minor nobles who actually owned the land in real terms. 
in Iran and the East, they were called Dekans. And mostly, these families had origins stretching all the way back to the Sassanid Empire before the coming of Islam. So a long-lasting and entrenched gentry that actually owned the land and took the bulk of the surplus of the peasants' production. The peasants worked the land, the Dekans owned it, and were entitled to a share of the proceeds. And we should remember that this work was absolutely backbreaking. Being a medieval peasant was a very hard life, and famines were common. Now, it seems that most Dekans owned relatively small fiefs, and there are frequent references in the sources to impoverished Dekans. Nizam ul-Mulk's family, for example, appears to have been Dekans who had fallen on hard times. The Dekans would exercise what we would broadly think of as feudal rights, the right to administer their little patches of land, and act basically as village headmen. Now, there was a great deal of diversity among the Dekans, of course. There were larger and wealthier noble families who might own huge estates and have been much wealthier than the other Dekans. But we don't seem to have reference to something like the European feudal chain of being, where there were multiple levels of highly graded nobility with large noble houses interfacing between the crown and the lower-ranking nobility and the gentry. Essentially, above the Dekans was the sovereign. In terms of what the peasants actually farmed, in most of the Seljuk domains, wheat was the primary foodstuff crop, and cotton was the primary cash crop. In some places, other crops were grown. Rice and sugarcane were grown in Iraq, particularly in the south, and rice was grown in pockets of Iran. Now, because of the generally arid or semi-arid climate of the Seljuk lands, access to adequate water to grow these crops could be very touch-and-go. We have a lot of evidence of droughts, or of cities living just on the edge of viability due to insufficient water. As such, farmers were heavily reliant on a vast system of irrigation infrastructure, something that was fairly unique to this part of Eurasia when compared to the rest of the continent. And in most of the lands of the empire, These irrigation systems were millennia old and extremely complicated. In Iraq, the complex irrigation system went all the way back to the dawn of civilization in ancient Mesopotamia in like 10,000 BC. Basically, it consisted of a web of canals and sluices branching off from the Tigris and the Euphrates, allowing the farmers to control the flow of water. Meanwhile, in Iran and the East, the ancient Kanat irrigation system went back to the Achaemenid Empire, or maybe even earlier. The Kanat were essentially underground canals that were built to tap aquifers and underground water in the mountains and then transport the water into the valleys where it would then be dispersed among the farms. Because the whole system was underground, it cleverly reduced loss of water to evaporation. These massive and complex irrigation systems in both Iraq and Iran, of course, required intensive cooperation to build and maintain. This was not a task that could be accomplished by a lone farmer or even small groups of farmers. Indeed, 
the fact that construction and maintenance of these complicated systems required massive feats of organization and cooperation is likely one of the reasons that the first cities arose in this part of Eurasia. The need to operate these agricultural systems was likely why urbanization started in the first place thousands of years ago. And ultimately, the responsibility to build and maintain these systems would lie with the cities of the region. Thus, as we discussed at the end of our episode on the state, cities remained the fundamental political building blocks of the region. In general, this was where the Deccans and the nobles would live, particularly after the 9th and 10th centuries. Though with exceptions, it appears that they were essentially urban elites, a marked contrast from contemporary European feudal nobles, who typically lived on their own isolated estates. There, the manor was the center of life and economic production and indeed of elite life. By contrast, in the Seljuk Empire, while the peasantry of course tended to live in the countryside in small villages, that was not where elite life really took place. Instead, for the 10-20% to of society that were not peasants, this world was actually a very urban world. And the cities also boasted merchants, traders, artisans, and craftspeople, of course. The urban bourgeoisie. Now, there's a lot of debate among economic historians as to whether there were guilds here, like those in medieval Europe, but most likely craftsmen and artisans did have some form of social and professional organization. There were also people in the cities who we would conceptualize of as professionals in our modern thinking. Moneylenders, lawyers, doctors, and so on. Mostly, they would have been drawn from the Deccan class and the wealthier of the urban bourgeoisie, of course. And as cities were the fundamental political units, and as this was where wealth was concentrated, these urban elites were politically powerful, though we should not forget that they were a distinct minority of the population. On the other end of the social ladder, it was also in the cities where most slaves could be found. It's hard to really know a lot about the number of slaves in the Seljuk Empire, but this was not the plantation slavery of the transatlantic world that we often picture in the modern day. Aside from the Turkish slave soldiers, who were sort of a special case, the sources don't really talk about slaves that often. But we do have a lot of reference to people being enslaved in military campaigns. Slavery was highly varied and likely ran the gamut with slaves working in all sorts of professions, from porter up through skilled craftsmen to teacher. Last episode, I quoted at length from the Kabusname, where the author lays out the quality of Turkish slaves. But he also lists other types of slaves and provides buying guides for them as well. These include musicians, soldiers, domestic servants, including servants in a women's harem, and herdsmen. So a wide range of occupations. And it is certain that sexual slavery was also common, and as we will discuss in our episode on culture, we do have some disturbing references in the sources to the practice of masters sexually abusing slaves of both genders. And this urban world was highly and rigidly socially stratified. Among the uppermost elite, the nobility, the basic social divisions were between the bureaucrats, the military, and the religious classes. 
Each of these classes had unique clothing, turbans, and other headgear styles in their own quarters of the city. This was then replicated down the social ladder, with merchants, craftsmen, and so on, all having their own markers and places of residence. In short, this was a largely urban elite world coupled with a largely rural peasant world, both of which then rested atop an extremely complicated and ancient irrigation system. It was a society that was extremely stratified, with rigid divisions between nobles and commoners, and then further divisions within each category. But we should remember that this economic world was also evolving even prior to the coming of the Turks. In eastern Iran, Khorasan and Balkh, the archaeological record indicates a massive urban boom in the 9th and 10th centuries immediately prior to the Seljuk migrations. This was connected to the Deccans becoming an increasingly urban elite, not rural gentry. Cities grew in size and population, and there was a corresponding growth in the urban classes of the bourgeoisie. And there is also an indication in the sources that cotton farming had grown considerably in Khorasan and eastern Iran during this same time. But then, it seems that the climatic shifts making the region colder and drier disproportionately affected the cotton industry. See, cotton plants need warm weather and lots of water, and they would have been very susceptible to the economic shifts that historians think occurred. This likely caused an economic contraction in the region immediately prior to the coming of the Seljuks. And in Iraq, while the population of Baghdad was also growing, the economy of the broader Iraqi countryside was already in decline. As we discussed back during our episodes on the rise of Islam and then the anarchy at Samarra, extensive and irreparable damage had already been done to the incredibly complex Iraqi irrigation system. Indeed, this reduction in productivity of the Iraqi countryside was a main cause of the anarchy at Samarra, and the downward trend has only been continuing since then. So these were the two economic systems, the two worlds really, that collided as the Turks began migrating in large numbers into Khorasan, Iran, Iraq, and then later into Syria and Anatolia. And when the Turks entered this changing world, immediately, of course, these two economic systems came into conflict. Firstly, the collapse of cotton farming in the east may have drawn the Turks to graze their herds in what used to be profitable cotton farms in the early years of the Seljuk migration into the region. While this was probably a better use of land that could no longer support cotton farming, it still caused tension. And of course, the Turkmen did not just stay in lands that used to grow cotton. As their numbers swelled, they moved more and more onto land that the peasantry needed to grow food. The sources are full of reference to the depredations of the Turkmen, some of which we covered in the narrative. The Suriani Christian chronicler Bar Hebraeus memorably said of Tuchrol and his Turkmen, In every place where his troops meet together, they plunder and destroy and kill, and no one district or quarter is able to support them for more than one week because of their vast number. And from sheer necessity, 
they are compelled to depart to another quarter in order to find food for themselves and their beasts. The Seljuk dynasty, knowing the claim that the Turkmen had on the state and their power, would usually not cross the tribes. Seljuk leaders were acutely aware of their duty as nomad leaders to provide pasturage to the tribes. And as such, if there was ever a conflict between the tribes and the settled peasantry or the nobles, when push came to shove, the state sided with the Turkmen. This meant that across the empire, the tribes grazed their herds on what used to be farmland. And perhaps most importantly, the Seljuks do not seem to have paid particularly close attention to the maintenance of the complex irrigation systems that were required to maintain agricultural productivity. This was both because they were primarily focused on the nomadic need for pasturage and because of the sort of constant violence that characterized the Seljuk era, especially after the end of al-Dawla al-Nizamiya. Writing in the 13th century, the Turkish geographer Yakut Bey wrote of the farming areas of central Iraq, They have been ruined since the days of the Seljuk kings because of the decay of the Nahrawan Canal. The Nahrawan River silted up, and the kings neglected to repair it and dig it out because of the fighting. Their troops trampled over it, and the district was destroyed in its entirety. Separately, Another cause of a continuing decline in agricultural productivity was the Ikta system, which was massively expanded during al-Dawla al-Nizamiya. Remember that the Ikta were tax fiefs that carried with them the right to administer the territory attached to the fief. They varied in size. Some were quite large and in essence covered whole cities. Some were quite small and perhaps covered a series of villages. And crucially, the Ikta were grants of the central state, and the state could withdraw them at any time. That meant that the Ikta holders were incentivized to maximize extraction of value in the present. Who knew if they would have the Ikta in the future? This led to mismanagement. First, the Ikta holders could be rapacious, demanding what amounted to confiscatory taxation and they also had no incentive to maintain the complex irrigation systems that made agriculture viable. Imagine you're an Ikta holder, and the local decans from your fief come to you saying, hey, we really need to spend some money on fixing up the local kanat. It's starting to silt up, it's not transporting the amount of water it used to, and we think we may need to build a new one and maybe drill a new wellhead a little further up the mountain. You're going to think, okay, that's going to be expensive, and it's going to take years to finish, and who knows if I'm even going to be here to benefit from it. I might just be spending money to make the next holder of this ikta richer. So you're going to say no, pay me. And so, agricultural production would then further decrease. And these two problems of rapacity and mismanagement, of course, compounded each other. Because of course, Ikta holders are going to look in the prior year's tax revenue and say, okay, pay me what you paid me last year. But productivity had fallen, and so the amount that was demanded was a larger percentage of the now lower yields. 
and so even less money was then left over for expenses and maintenance, and so on and so on and so on. So over the period of Seljuk history that we have covered in the narrative, it seems that these factors all came together to produce, in general, an economic crisis that eventually boiled over. The ravages of the Turkmen, the grazing of herds in formerly arable farmland, the inattention to the complex irrigation systems, and the perverse incentives of the Iktas system led to lower agricultural yields. In some places, this accelerated a downward trend that had begun before the coming of the Seljuks. But while this is the general economic picture, there are some important qualifications. It is too simplistic to say that the Seljuk period was an era of unalloyed economic decline. And indeed, modern historians are reappraising the traditional view that this era really was an economic catastrophe. First, as I said earlier, our sources really aren't great and the archaeological evidence is basically non-existent. So there may be more to the picture than we currently see. More importantly, there were benefits to the arrival of the Turks in addition to negatives. Remember, steppe societies always exist in concert with their settled neighbors. And this is even more true when they are in essence sharing the same space. Not just neighbors, but overlapping societies in a sense. The Turks would trade valuable products with the settled world. Indeed, there's a Karakhanid manual for princes, similar to Nizam al-Muqsiyas at Name, which says, They provide us with food and clothing, horses for the army, and pack animals for transportation, kumis, that is fermented mare's milk, and milk, wool and butter, yogurt and cheese, and also carpets and felts. They are a useful class of men, and you should treat them well. The historian A.C.S. Peacock has noted that the areas of the empire that had the heaviest Turkmen settlement, namely Azerbaijan, Central Asia, northern Iran, and northern Syria, were also the areas of the empire where archaeological evidence indicates that urban expansion during the Seljuk period is most pronounced. It may well be that the arrival of the Turkmen was in fact all in all a net positive, at least for the urban world if not for the peasants. It seems that the arrival of the tribes and their herds may have revitalized these areas, perhaps because their land usage was less intensive and more suited to these semi-arid and arid regions. In addition, the picture of economic doom and gloom may be somewhat regionally biased, for lack of a better term. The Great Seljuk Empire was a truly massive place, and there was a lot of variety across it. It may be that some areas of the empire, particularly Iraq, where many of the authors lived, did fare particularly badly, but that this was not uniform across the empire. And indeed, as we said earlier, the Iraqi economy was already in decline before the Seljuks came, as was the economy of the western part of the empire as a whole, which just happens to be where most of our authors lived. There's actually an illuminating passage in Ibn al-Athir's history, where Tukhrul reportedly compared the western lands he conquered to the eastern lands of his brother Chari, saying, I came to a land which my predecessors had ruined, and those who came before me had ravaged. 
I could not make it prosper when enemies were surrounding it and necessity forced me to march across it with armies, nor was it possible to prevent damage to it. So it might be that outside of the West, the Seljuk period was actually a bit more mixed, which seems to also be the story suggested by some of the archaeological work done in the Soviet era, before political events made conducting archaeological digs in Central Asia impracticable. And we do have one written source which does also attest to this sort of mixed economic picture. We have in essence a diary written by a Seljuk official named Ibn al-Balhi, who was stationed in the province of Fars in southern Iran in the early 12th century. So basically just where we left the narrative. Ibn al-Balhi provides us with a great description of what life was like. Now, some of what he says really does line up with the traditional story of decline. For example, he writes about the deprivations to the land caused by a Turkmen confederation called the Shaban Kara and their wars with Kavort. Incidentally, this is the only mention of this Turkmen confederation, which is fascinating because it implies that we are missing all sorts of powerful Turkmen confederations from the historical record. You know, if a mighty Turkmen nomad confederation only happens to have come down to us in this one source that kind of survived accidentally and mentions it only in an oblique way, how many more must be missing from the main Islamic histories? Ibn al-Balki mentions that the population of the city of Shiraz had fallen and notes that Seljuk mismanagement had caused the major port of the province to decline. But at the same time, Ibn al-Balhi also mentions several important economic improvements. He says that the local emir had suppressed the Shabankara Turkmen and rebuilt dams to improve the irrigation systems. He also mentions that cotton production had increased and that the local Seljuk authorities were supporting the cotton industry. He mentions several towns as having increased in population. Most interestingly to me, he mentions the increase of grazing herds in the province and how this new economic activity benefited the region. So the introduction of this new nomadic mode of production alongside traditional agriculture was clearly valuable. So while there is support for the traditional sort of view of the Seljuk era as a period of economic decline, and there probably is some truth to that, we shouldn't really take it too far. Indeed, the story on the ground was actually likely very mixed. In some ways, yes, there were serious economic issues. Often, these predated the arrival of the Turks, but were exacerbated and made worse by them. But in other ways, this was also a period of economic growth and prosperity. In short, we can say that this was an era of transformation, even if we unfortunately don't have the details about that transformation. And really, we need more archaeological research to get a proper view. Unfortunately, historians are still sort of working in the dark here, and I think we can add better Seljuk-era archaeological opportunities to the list of reasons why peace in the Middle East would be a good thing. One area of transformation that we do have a somewhat better view of is trade. Indeed, it is telling that both scholars who think that the Seljuk era is best categorized as an era of decline and those who think of it as an era of growth and transformation agree that trade expanded under the Seljuks. And indeed, 
This makes total sense. Though it was a fractious and decentralized political entity, the great Seljuk Empire did rule from Byzantium to China. It therefore politically united the Silk Road and the center of Eurasia, and trade predictably expanded. We have persuasive evidence of an increased amount of pottery shards of Chinese origin in the main Seljuk ports on the Persian Gulf, indicating an increase in maritime trade with China. And separately, according to many historians including the famous and influential Bernard Lewis, the Fatimid caliphs in Egypt were constantly trying to attract this maritime Chinese trade towards their Red Sea ports. This implies, of course, that there was a substantial trade between the Seljuk Empire and China that was worth attracting in the first place. And there is also evidence that the land trade along the Silk Road expanded. Soviet-era archaeological digs in Merv, the capital of Khorasan, indicate the construction of a large number of caravansarais in the city during the Seljuk period. These were essentially inns that traders could stay in on their routes. Indeed, modern-day Turkey is also dotted with Seljuk-era caravansarais as well. Further caravansarais have been found along the routes to Russia, and the Seljuk Empire became a nexus of trade from across the whole of Eurasia. Spices and Finnish goods traversing the Indian Ocean from India, and beyond that China, slaves, furs, and amber moving from Russia across Central Asia, and goods crossing Anatolia and the Mediterranean, to the Byzantine Empire and Europe beyond. There is also at least some evidence in the written sources of the wealth of the merchants themselves, at least the very richest merchants, which is very interesting. See, it's important to understand that merchants were not considered a high-ranking class of people. This is a bit weird for us today, where whole biographies are written about successful capitalists, and there literally are cults of personality around people like Warren Buffett and Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. But this was emphatically not the attitude of medieval Muslims, who essentially saw merchants as close to the bottom of the social structure. Basically like peasants, or even worse, as they were seen as not really producing anything. But the Islamic histories do mention at least a couple rich merchants by name. In particular, a fantastically wealthy merchant named Ibn Jarada, who lived in Baghdad during the reigns of Tughrul and Al-Parslan. And in order for someone as lowly as a merchant to be mentioned by name, he must have been fantastically wealthy. This is an indication that the expansion of trade during the Seljuk era made merchants, or at the very least some merchants, incredibly rich. And in turn, implies an expansion of transcontinental and transoceanic trade with China, Russia, and India. So in summary, the picture we have of the Seljuk economy is a mixed bag, and our view is obscured by the sorry state of archaeology in the lands of the former empire. But from the view that we do have, we can say that the Seljuk period was an era of economic transformation and turmoil, as two rival modes of production collided. In some places, this led to economic disaster, and no doubt, the perverse incentives of the Iktas system 
cause great harm to the economy as a whole. But at the same time, we do see evidence that this was not the whole picture. In some places, the introduction of the nomads caused economic growth, and the expansion of trade seems to have been significant. As with many things relating to the Seljuks, the picture is not uniform and it is not simple or straightforward. And hopefully, one day this picture will become clearer as archaeology resumes and advances. So here's to praying for peace in the Middle East. And speaking of, next time we will jump into another area that I probably should have paid more attention to in the narrative. Religion. Religion. 